Greg, how fast can you say she sells seashells by oh, the no. seashore? Oh, no. I'm challenging you. Do it. She sells. Oh, goodness. <laughs> she sells seashells by the seashore. Okay, what if I told you that that nursery rhyme is based on a real person? Oh, cool. And she discovered dragons. What? But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. You can't do that. You can't tease me and then just go into this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant, see what we did there, discoveries, ideas, or indeed people. I'm Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger. And for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means that Greg mm-hmm. knows nothing about it. Which I love. No notes. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> okay, I'm going to set the scene for you. We're going to pretend that it's the year 1810 or so. This is when the British, your people, are at war with Napoleon. Jane Austen has written her novel Sense and Sensibility, and you and I, let's say, are young, working-class girls in the south of England. Bonnets are in very high fashion, but because you and I are quite young, we're probably not wearing them as we're walking along the beach. And we're walking along the beach in the south of England, and we notice something that looks like an animal bone in the rock. Except this animal is almost five meters long because it's an ichthyosaur. Oh, yes. So this is what actually happened to one of my favorite scientific figures in all of history, and her name is Mary Anning. So for this episode, I spoke to Andy Knoll, who is a Harvard professor of natural history, professor of earth and planetary sciences, and the curator of Harvard's paleobotanical collections, and as it happens, a fellow Mary Anning fan. And she grew up in a little village on the south coast of England named Lyme Regis. And if you go to Lyme Regis, one of the great features of the area is that just outside of town, there are large cliffs that line the sea and extend for kilometers in either direction. Those turn out to be some of the most fossiliferous rocks you'll ever see. And Mary's father, in fact, had a business collecting these curios, fossils, if you will, and and selling them to travelers and, and other people. And so in a sense, Mary grew up as part of the family business. Now, what's special about Mary Anning is that she was really good at what she did. I think fossiliferous is probably one of my favorite words of all time. Yeah, you had fossiliferous, you had curios, which <laughs> curios. I absolutely love. And so he's talking about uh, an area of the UK that's down where I've got family, actually. And it's, I was going to ask you if it's you've been. absolutely beautiful. I want to go so I haven't bad. actually been to Lyme Regis, but that whole coastline down there, Devon, kind of Dorset coast, is just stunning. Exactly. It just would be such a wonderful place to first stumble across fossils. Yeah, I think this whole, this whole region along the south of England is now what we call the Jurassic Coast, mm-hmm. because it is so fossiliferous, your word for the day. As the 1800s are picking up, fossils are becoming something that people start to collect. And I was actually really surprised to know that we have known that things like ammonites, so that's sort of like a big swirly seashell that might be embedded in a rock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We've known that those were fossils since Roman times and even before, like when we've excavated Roman tombs, people had 
Ammonites in their tombs with them. And we think from historical record and from from different uh, accounts that the Romans knew that these were the remnants of animals that were no longer living. So we have an understanding that fossils are previously existing animals, but there's some controversy that we'll get to. So if you can just picture, and you've been there, so you can, these towering white clay cliffs that just jut straight up from the beach. And basically every single layer of paleontological time is like laid out layer by layer as it happens, kind of like you would see in a geology book. It's remarkably handy. It's crazy. You can essentially just read back in time from looking at those layers. Exactly. But at the time, in the early 1800s, Mary Anning's father is a carpenter. He's not a scientist. He's not a scholar. They're a pretty poor family. He takes the whole family, wife, kids, the whole gang out to the beach to hunt for fossils as souvenirs, curios to sell to tourists who come down to Lyme Regis. Because again, this is the time of the Napoleonic Wars and everybody's being encouraged to holiday in country as opposed to going elsewhere like France. Staycation. Yeah, a little bit. Go just go down to the beach. So this is probably mostly ammonites. They're mostly finding those. And so it's other small common fossils, seashells. That's probably what's being referred to in that nursery rhyme when she's selling seashells. Oh, so is that Mary Anning? It's Mary Anning. Oh, that's wonderful. Because she develops this, this huge reputation, which we'll get to throughout her life, for being one of the principal paleontologists of her time. Somebody calls her the princess of paleontology. Hmm. But I just want to point out here that because of her class status, Mary has very little formal education. She's probably made it through primary school. She can read, but that's about it. There's no formal schooling for her after about age eight. And all of her knowledge that she develops from here on out is self-taught. And that means that even though, as we'll soon find out, she made some of the most important early contributions to paleontology, there's also relatively little known about her and accounts of her life are scarce. Not many people wrote about her. And I say all that to prep you for this next tidbit, which I think is hilarious. And we should also take with a pinch of salt because it's legend. It's very apocryphal. It Uh is very likely probably not true, but it's a legend that was told about Mary by her family. It's said that when she's about a year old, Mary's being held in someone's arms or she's chilling by a tree and suddenly she's struck by lightning. And the person who is holding her dies, but somehow Mary survives. And this supposedly... it like conducts through the person holding her. Who knows? Sure. Supposedly becomes a crucial part of Mary's origin story. It's almost like she's a superhero, right? This is like a comic book situation. Yeah, like an X-Men. Yes, exactly. Uh, But this is how her family likes to tell this story. And they often say it's the reason that she's so intelligent. It gives her her super, superhuman powers of scientific observation. I'd like to see the uh, peer reviewed, blinded <laughs> study on that, please. Thanks. I don't think that's hanging around, Greg. And also, this is apparently legitimately a very tough time to be alive because her parents actually have nine or ten children and only her and her brother survive to adulthood. So even if the lightning story isn't quite as true to life as Mary Anning's family would like us to think, it is actually pretty miraculous that she survived her childhood at all. So I'm really interested to see what what it is that makes her name because obviously if fossils are known about since Roman period with Ammonites and I know from walking around similar um, south coast uh, white cliff kind of regions around Kent and then into Dorset and Devon, you do find a lot of Ammonites. Like they are kind of ten a penny, as we would say. When she's about 11, her father tragically falls off of one of these famous Lyme Regis cliffs and he unfortunately later dies. So he's left Mary, 11, Joseph, her older brother and her mother to fend for themselves. And they're left to figure out how to provide for themselves after their breadwinner is gone. And Mary throws herself into fossil hunting and by all accounts is really 
good at it. So she's doing this to help the family out, to sell more things to tourists, to make sure that her family can put food on the table. And so sometime after this, she's about 12. Now, remember back to when you were 12. I was not a very competent human at 12. But she and her brother, Joseph, are on the beach looking for fossils and they uncover something insane, which turns out to be one of the very first ever complete fossils of an ichthyosaur. Imagine imagine that. Like, imagine that moment. Like, I'm sure people had dogs. You're used to seeing bigger animals and whatnot, but like an ichthyosaur. I've got some pictures here of the skeleton I'd like you to take a look at and describe. It's weird. It looks kind of like an alligator. It does. And that's what people thought it might have been. Might have been an alligator skeleton or a crocodile skeleton because that was an animal that people recognized. Zoologists were aware that there were animals that might look a little bit like this, but they're also very keen anatomists. Like we're dissecting those animals and they realize that this is not an animal that we know of today. Um, And just to explain, you know, I'm seeing essentially uh, a top-down image of the whole fossil I assume. All of the um, bones in the rock. All the bones are there. The fins, yeah, you know, yeah. look like they've got amazing kind of scale structure still intact. You can see them. Massive long backbone going into tails with tons of vertebrae, Big lots of snout. ribs coming off. And that snout is a thing that kind of jumps out at me. I guess that's what it makes it look a little bit kind of like alligator yeah, stroke dolphin like. Exactly. Yeah, and if yeah, you look yeah. up pictures of like an artist's interpretation of what they look like, you know, as whole animals pre-skeletonization, uh, they do. They look like toothy Hey, toothy dolphin. (laughs) Toothy dolphin. It's a very, very technical term. But actually, the name ichthyosaur means fish lizard. It is technically neither of those things because it's a marine reptile that we now know was around starting about 250 million years ago. They hang out in Earth's ancient oceans until they disappear about 90 million years ago. And no one had ever seen one of these skeletons before. I mean, Mary's definitely never seen anything like this before. There are accounts of partial ichthyosaur fossil being discovered elsewhere in Europe pre this discovery, but this is the first one that's recognized by the Royal Geological Society. So it's the first one that's that we sort of have an official record for, at least in the UK and the Royal Society uh, circles. And it's the one of the, I think, the first ever complete fossils. Has she done the reading to know how to extract it? She's 12, Greg. Yeah, but I mean, come on, there are some brilliantly precocious and knowledgeable 12-year-olds who you can imagine would be like, right, I need this little brush and I need this. Because it's not like they're going to take a photo, is it? That's such a good point. That's such a good question. Because no, I mean, granted, we don't have a lot of record of Mary's life or her education or how she learned what she learned. So she probably didn't read it in a book. But she, at 12, spends months painstakingly removing this complete ichthyosaur fossil from the rock. She by herself goes out every day and with whatever methods she can put together, she's trying to get this thing out as carefully as possible. So this is what I think we're talking about when we say self-taught. She's learning along the way. She recognizes, oh man, this is going to be important. This is just conjecture here. But, you know, she's coming from the perspective of selling things to make a living for her family. Yeah, so she I, thinks this is a big one. This would think be of a the worth big of this. one. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's probably how this all starts is her impetus to make sure she can take care of her family. But that pretty rapidly evolves into scientific curiosity. Okay, well, what Mary Anning did working in these cliffs uh, just south of, of Lyme Regis was find the remains of large complex organisms that lived in the sea that have no counterpart in the modern biota. And, and that really fueled what was then a very new and controversial idea that extinction occurred and that the creation was not perfect, that there were many organisms in the past that no longer exist today. So that was that was really important. 
So what's going on at the time is a total realignment about how we're thinking about the world and its natural history. Yeah, because suddenly you're like, okay, that does not look like an animal that we recognize right now. Okay, it looks a little bit like an alligator. Okay, it looks a little bit like a dolphin, but it is different. Exactly. And if it is different, was it around and it died or did it turn into something? Mm-hmm. Like this is going to get all sorts of ideas. And I'm guessing not just debates, but arguments. Huge, huge controversy, which is what I was referring to earlier. So at the center of all of this controversy is a Frenchman named Georges Cuvier. Oh, yes. Good old Georges. And he plays a really central role in this story because it had been proposed, as I mentioned, for quite some time that fossils, like those ammonites that the Annings were collecting on the beach and selling that we found in Roman tombs, they were the remains of once living organisms that no longer existed. And this idea has actually been around since the age of Leonardo da Vinci. I don't know if you know, but da Vinci was also a paleontologist. He's the first. Really? Yes. He's one of the first to suggest this idea centuries before Anning and Cuvier. But now, now it's the 1800s and there's still this really fierce debate going on and there's more and more evidence for the side that life on earth is changing and has been different in the past. Many thinkers of the day are still subscribing to a religion-based worldview or an Aristotelian-based worldview. So the ideas of Aristotle that things are pretty static on earth and haven't changed. And some people, including Thomas Jefferson, who was a scholar and a scientist at the same time as Cuvier, looks at fossils like mammoth bones and goes, well, these could probably exist somewhere out there in the wilderness still, right? Like maybe these fossils are remains of animals that are still around, like elephants. We just haven't found the living examples yet. Um, But hang on. You've just now mentioned that Thomas Jefferson... The third president of the United States One of those. Was, One of those guys. was also an avid fossil collector. And, you know, that was his thing. Maybe not a fossil collector. He's a he's a quote unquote scientist, as most learned men are of his Didn't day. He's considered an expert in many things, probably because he's a rich white guy in America when there are a couple couple of those hanging around. But that was the thing in, in that era, wasn't it? That you do go collect those curios and that they're a sign of wealth, a sign of your exactly. uh, discovery of and adventure around the world. That you have this leisure time and this intellectual capacity to consider these large questions and these uh, crazy things that are being pulled out of the ground. I mean, can you imagine never having seen a fossil before and then suddenly we're living in this age where they're all coming out of the ground and we're trying to figure out what they are all of the quote unquote learned men of the day are trying to find a theory that makes these fit into our, our understanding of the world yes well i think it's fair to say that for most of the history of humans thinking about our planet we thought of the earth around us as being permanent and unchanging and if that's the case there is no particular reason to think about age and and things like this. The earth was simply made. It was made as you see it. And that was a good explanation for people for a long time. But Cuvier, he comes on the scene and he really leads the charge to insisting that there are fossils of animals that no longer exist in the world. He's essentially the first to really strongly advocate for this idea of extinction. But Cuvier is an anatomist. He publishes detailed studies showing that modern elephant anatomy is significantly different from, say, the anatomy of mammoth fossil skeletons that we found. He details out the anatomy of fossilized animals like the giant sloth and the Irish elk, both examples of megafauna that existed on our planet way before us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I've just Googled giant sloth. A megatherium. 
One of the largest land mammals known to existed weighed four tons, measured up to six meters in length from head to tail. And there's artist recreation of it, like with a person in front. Whoa. Huge. Whoa. Way bigger than you would ever think. You got to look up a picture of the giant sloth and the Irish elk too. I mean, that is something that is is legitimately from myth. Wow. That's really spiky. <laughs> As in its vertebrae are like really spiky in addition to it having obviously the massive antlers. So Cuvier is a brilliant anatomist. He's looking at these skeletons and he's saying, no, 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 guys, these are not around. These do not exist. Something happened to them. And so he comes up with this theory that there have been events throughout history that have decimated populations that have made it so that these animals are no longer around today. Mass extinctions. Mass extinctions. He calls them catastrophes. Right, yeah. And his hard work in this area is what makes many scientists now hail him as the father of modern vertebrate paleontology. And he becomes a little bit of a show-off, actually. I get the sense that he's got a lot of confidence in his skills because he gets uh, famed for being able to identify and categorize a whole animal after being shown just a single bone of oh, an organism's fossil. <laughs> Seems like a bit of a party trick. Unless it was some clearly iconic bone. <laughs> so what's Mary up to? She's still down in Lyme Regis, uncovering more and more extraordinary fossils. It's going to take her a while to get that first ichthyosaur out. Uh, yeah, I know. Months and <laughs> months imagine? and months. She's putting them up for sale in her shop because that's what she knows to do, right? She doesn't have access to these academic societies in London. She is not reaching out to them. She's concerned about putting food on the table. So she's selling things in her shop. She's also quietly making really detailed sketches and anatomy notes of each of her finds. Oh, brilliant. So we have a lot of her notes and she it's very clear that she is taking a lot of time to understand what each part is, how they all fit together. She has thoughts about what these animals are. And, and she's one like a young teenager now, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Young uh, teens, early 20s. You know, this takes this takes a while for people to recognize that there's this girl down in Lyme Regis who's digging some pretty remarkable things. I can imagine someone just comes rock. down to her shop yeah. and they're like, oh, yeah, I was here last year. Just wanted to get another couple of ammonites for right. the fam before we go home, you know, a yeah. couple of presents. And, like, and they oh, go, whoa, 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 whoa what is that? Oh, so I've got these couple of drawings. I've got this. It comes from this place. And if you think that's impressive, come and have a look at this guy. Oh, yeah. Like my mate back in London is really going to need to see this. And so eventually word gets up to the famed academic societies in London and Paris, where all of this academic debate is raging about how and why or whether or not we need to change our most fundamental views about the earth and how it came to be. And Mary is just beginning to enter that sphere. The science of geology was really taking shape at this time. And with it, these major changes in our thinking about our own planet and its history. I mean, in some ways, in the 19th century, geology and paleontology were you know, not unlike genomics today that, you know, if you go back and look at the New York Times in the 1800s, you'll find, you know, big headlines on the discovery of new dinosaurs in Wyoming and things like this. So in some ways, it was the prominent science of the day. And that, of course, was related to the, to the fact that, you know, much of the prominent industry of the day was based on mineral extraction. And that so for both practical and and fundamental reasons, that was the big science. I find this scene setting, this context so 
interesting. The fact that early 19th century, those subjects that obviously we see as not as complicated as the likes of genomics, you know, that he mentioned, which for anyone uh, who doesn't know what genomics is, it's essentially the sequencing of someone's human genome and then using that to make, for example, personalised medicine. Exactly. Or, or so our like understanding that. of genetics. And, 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 you know, that is what we see as really cutting edge. But this notion that understanding the Earth's structure and the Earth's history and, and animal internal structure and their history is like the cutting edge. <laughs> Exactly, because I feel like, you know, you and I in today's day and age kind of take that for granted a little bit. Like, yeah, it's cool to go see the dinosaur skeleton at the Natural History Museum. Like, that's awesome. But it's it's I think it is very difficult to imagine how crazy this would be to have these things coming out of the earth and how it would be radically changing our ideas. So but, I love that, that Andy, Andy says, has that to you know, say. It's the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. It's oh, it's that time when they're when when they're looking to the earth, they're looking underneath their feet and, and the power that, and that can bring. And this is what's coming and up. This is what's coming up. <laughs> exactly. So we're gonna continue along with how Mary gets involved with all of this officially after we take a quick break. So We're back. In Lyme Regis, 1800s, the great men of science are slowly coming to realize that this woman selling paleontological curios is also very knowledgeable, not only about the craft of paleontology and removing and preserving these fossils, but also about the organisms themselves. And they actually often take her findings and publish their own work based on her specimens and her observations. And would you believe it? They never credit her in their official work. So this paper is published as well. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And her fossils, her fossils. And here's the thing. There's also economics at play. It's not just that she's a woman. They're buying them from her and she needs the money because she's a poor working class woman in England. So she's sort of held in this place of being the fossil supplier, Mm. not only by her class, but also then never gets credit because of her gender. So her fossils end up in museums all over Europe without her ever being credited as the discoverer again. But again, why would she? I mean, women weren't allowed into scientific societies at the time, and she would have been seen as intellectually inferior in both class and gender. So as Andy is about to tell us, it wouldn't really ever have occurred to them to see her as a scientific equal, certainly. It's only really with a modern lens on her story that we even call her a paleontologist. And so she became actually very well known and very respected among the geologists and paleontologists of the time. You know, any number of the most prominent, not only British, but European scientists actually made the journey to Lyme Regis and went fossil collecting with Mary. Now, it turns out that because she came from a working class background at a time when most of the great scientists came from an upper class background, and not surprisingly because she was a woman, when essentially all of the prominent scientists were men, I think it's fair to say that Mary did not get the kind of credit that she deserved in in her lifetime. Um, I, I, I don't know that there was, you know, any plot to keep her from getting uh, recognition. But, you know, the tenor of the times was simply that she was the person who was so good at collecting the fossils that the great men could then interpret. And you said something earlier as well about 
the kind of craft knowledge that she's mm-hmm. that she's developed, not only at removing those bones, but you said preserving those bones. And I never really thought about that, that you've got to, obviously when you have a, a live specimen or a specimen with tissue, you have to preserve it in a particular way so it can last, mm-hmm. um, especially in museums for a long period of time. But to make fossils last, I never thought, oh yeah, so you, maybe you need to treat them or whatever. And she's been working out what on earth to do with that. And I bet they take all of that knowledge as well. Lots of it. And granted, she's not the only one like fossil collecting and fossil hunting is very popular at this time. But she is quite possibly the most prolific and certainly the most well known and the most well connected to these academic societies that we know of at the time. And it turns out that Mary herself has thoughts about this fact that her work is exploited by these people who get the credit of publishing because we're lucky enough that one of her close friends, Anna Marie Pinney, who is also a, a fossil nurse and goes out collecting fossils with Mary quite often. She writes about Mary, saying that Mary says the world has used her ill and she does not care for it. According to her account, these men of learning have sucked her brains and made a great deal by publishing works of which she furnished the contents, while she derived none of the advantages. Apart from being paid for that sample, which, I guess. Which, you know, pretty essential. But Mary never, you know, she she certainly never gets rich. <laughs> she's just barely scraping by, so she has to keep doing this her whole life. So well, she's clearly a bright cookie, right? She gets that she, she has the intellectual aspiration as mm-hmm. well and knowledge. To, to want to be involved in that discussion. And Anna Marie Pinney, actually, her friend who's writing about her, actually gives a, a pretty clear picture of who Mary is as a person, which I really like. It You kind of get to know her personality. Pinney writes that Mary glories in being afraid of no one mm-hmm. and in saying anything she pleases. Which Brilliant. paints a quite quite a spirited yeah. picture, which yeah. I like a lot. And I think it's important to note here that her friend, this this friend that was writing about her, Penny, is not the only other woman who befriends Mary and forms this sort of gang of fossil collecting women down in the south of England. There is a whole group of them who form really close friendships and support each other. A lot of them are either more middle class than Mary or they're married, so they don't have as much freedom as she does to have this business, but also they don't have the financial burden of having to keep this business alive. So that's one of the reasons we think they probably never contributed as much as Mary did. But I just think Do they have a network kind of between them that they know of each other? Unofficial. I want them to have like a team name. I know. They they need their own academic society, right? But of course, they're constrained by the, as Andy says, the tenor of the times. They're just very, very close friends. Some people have interpreted history to have their relationships be more than friends, but that's a lot of conjecture about why Mary never married and her very close friendships with these other female fossil hunters. It's all a lot of reading in between the lines, but there's some interesting theories there. To give another perspective on Mary, a lady of high society comes down to visit her in 1824. This is the widow of the former recorder of London. So a learned and high society lady comes down to see Mary and uh, learn about her fossils and her methods. And she writes this in her diary about Mary. The extraordinary thing in this young woman is that she has made herself so thoroughly acquainted with the science that the moment she finds any bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. 
She fixes the bones on a frame with cement and then makes drawings and has them engraved. It is certainly a wonderful instance of divine favor that this poor, ignorant girl should be so blessed, for by reading an application she has arrived to that degree of knowledge as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors and other clever men on the subject, and they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone else in this kingdom. I love that notion that it gives us a bit of a sense of her methodology. Mm-hmm. That she takes them off, she places them on a board. Is it like concrete board? Are they yeah, with, with concrete? cement. With cement, yeah. yeah. And then from that, she then kind of draws it and then she gets them etched. Then she's also mentioning, you know, clever men. It's just, it's... Yeah, well, and also this instance of divine favour, that thing is so interesting to me that Mary's intellectual abilities are granted by God. It's kind of echoing this initial legend that she was struck by lightning and that's why she's so smart. Like, come on, can a girl just be smart of her own? own accord, guys. <laughs> but yet the research, well, yet the, the the fossils that she's bringing up are essentially kind of going against yes. that notion of a divine God's perfection placed down here and never yep. changing. And it just gives this idea that of how people saw women and their intellectual abilities during this time was that she couldn't possibly just be smart or have taught herself this. It was like, oh, it's there's some external force at work here that makes her gifted or blessed in some way, which I think is really interesting. And in in reference to your thoughts about preservation of fossils, there's also lots of accounts of Mary coming back from the beach and having bones crumble in her hands on her way back to her shop. So can you imagine like all of the evidence that we've lost just because we didn't have the technology at the time to preserve bones in the way that we do now? A lot of this is, again, so much down to chance. Mary's born in the right place at the right time when this debate is happening. She finds, I mean, the chance of finding, number one, that these fossils are preserved in the first place and then that Mary gets to find them. Can I just say, it's a really great thing to go out and do, fossil hunting. Yeah. Um, A while back when I was down in Kent, southeast England, me and my other half went out searching for fossilized shark's teeth. Ooh. So they're like 50 did you find million any? years old. Yeah, we did. <gasps> yeah, we made a YouTube video about it. And I'm it's so just, jealous. and you just go out there, you got to wait till the tides uh, right out. Mm. And you're going in, you're looking for these small, kind of little pointed, you know, they look like, well, they are very different from the rocks around them. And you realize these are the teeth of that is 50 insane. million year old sharks. I mean, in that moment, and you can, just, you can just go out yourself and find them. It's got to be crazy. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's such a vivid and fantastic memory in my mind. Gives you a little glimpse of what it, might, it must have been like for her, yeah. To come to, across whole skeletons. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll get right into that after we take a quick break. So we're back, and this is where the world of George Cuvier and Mary Anning crash together. So remember, George Cuvier is this anatomist, he's the one who's come up with this idea of extinction. He's the one who's saying, no, guys, these skeletons are not the skeletons of animals that are still around. And Anning's down working hard in Lyme Regis. So after finding the ichthyosaur at age 12, Mary then spends all of these years honing her skill. And eventually she comes across something she hardly dares believe is real because she uncovers another fossil. fossil. I'm about to show you a picture, Greg. This is is so exciting. (laughs) I don't even want to say the name yet because... Can I just see it? Yeah, yeah. I want you to see it. Here. Right, so I'm looking at a picture of, uh, it's actually in a way, it's quite similar to the ichthyosaur. Um, It's an animal with uh, four fins going out the side, uh, much, much longer neck. 
neck between kind of front fins and head. Head isn't as kind of big and bulbous and mm-hmm. pointy. So it looks like it's really long, really thin. I think I can take a stab at what it is. Is that a plesiosaur? Oh my God, you're right, Greg. You're a fossil expert <laughs> I, along I'm really with Mary. Not. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I love about this initial sketch by Mary is there's this uh, whole top right hand corner is filled with this intricate script of like some very detailed and highly condensed notes. I think it's just her description of the time in which she found it and the number of vertebrae she counts them. And it is a surprising number of vertebrae. So this neck is incredibly long. It's got an improbable number of ribs. It doesn't have legs or fins like a fish, but instead has these four little funny paddles is what they're calling them at the time where okay. their legs might be. What's phenomenal is look, is how complete it is yes. from that sketch. Yes. There's just a couple of vertebrae missing. And a key to this is that there are a couple of vertebrae missing at the bottom of the neck and some of them have a crack in it. So somebody shows this sketch and Anning's documentation to Cuvier. And by this time, he is arguably the most respected anatomist of his day and plays a really big role in these paleontological societies. And he says, and remember, this is the guy who prides himself on being able to identify a whole animal from one bone of a fossil. He says, I think this might be a scam. He says, I don't think this is real, which is hugely problematic for Mary because her entire living is based on selling these things as real, especially to you know, learned men of science. She's gained this reputation for being highly respected. And, and they wouldn't have the technology to work out what was real at this I, point, it, Very, right? very limited because there are some hucksters who are selling incomplete fossils with like replaced bones in plaster and are trying to sell them as originals. You've also got people constructing the incorrect anatomy from bones yes. that they find that aren't fully formed like this plesiosaur exactly. or whatever. Exactly. So Mary's reputation is in danger here all because Cuvier, who's the guy up, up in the fancy place is saying like, I don't know about this. He thinks the fossil is a fake and he cautions the scientific community to proceed with care before declaring this to be a new kind of animal. It's radiocarbon dating mm-hmm. or something like that, which, isn't it? To actually date a thing, which is obviously way well, you know, more 1950s, modern. 1950s, 1960s. So how, what can you do? You like, have to look real close. Get your microscope out. That's literally what they've got. Or their magnifying glass. They don't even really have microscopes that they're putting on these guys yet. They just have someone with a good eye. That notion an of, expert. of taking other bones, <laughs> though, like you say, and, and building your own skeleton yeah. and trying to like People fob it off for something it. new. Yeah, gosh. Or oh. replacing whole skeletons with plaster and trying to say this is a bone. It's so not. what happens? Do, do, does the flow of learned London gentlemen wanting to come down for samples diminish? So people are suspicious and they want to know. They want to know if this animal could possibly be real, because if it is, it marks another big step in our understanding of ancient marine life. They organize a special meeting to discuss this exact particular issue at the Geologic Society of London in 1824. Does she get to go? No. You will, be not, you will not be surprised to hear she was not invited, even though she's the one who finds the bones. And the one who's being criticized. Of course. But at the end of the meeting, the consensus of all of these attendees, these experts, is that the fossil is actually real. So Mary is safe and Cuvier does eventually relent and he years later admits... Yeah, I was probably wrong to say that it was fake. Sorry about that. So after this plesiosaur triumph, Mary's reputation is cemented, if you will, in uh, the academic societies of the world. And her next major find is a jumble of bones and crucially, wings. She comes across the first pterosaur fossil ever found outside of Germany. And this is those winged dinosaurs. So this is the flying 
flying dinosaurs. When um, when was this? She finds the pterosaur fossil in 1828. Okay. Uh, also, fun fact, uh, outside of these, you know, huge skeletons, gigantic animals, very important discoveries of totally novel fossils, she also makes a study of coprolites. Do you know what coprolites are, Greg? Oh, I've heard of coprolites. They're fossilized poop. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's it. Which is really remarkable at the time. How does she realize that that's what I it is? I want to know, but we have so little documentation from her. We, and that's one of the tragedies, I think, of Mary's story is that she was this wealth of knowledge. And so little has been preserved of her work. So we don't actually think there's any evidence that Mary and Cuvier ever met each other, especially because Cuvier was mostly just busy in Paris. But it's safe to say that Mary's work contributed hugely to the wider academic environment at the time and was very influential to Cuvier coming up with his ideas of paleontological extinction. You know, Mary was one of a large number of people who were making discoveries about fossils in in the early 1800s. So one doesn't want to suggest that she was alone in the wilderness, uh, bringing on our modern perception of Earth history. But she was a very good observer she was smart in the way she collected and as a result i I think the collections that she made were as important as any fossil discoveries in the first half of of the 19th century Uh, as i said those are broadened our view of just the diversity of life in the past they strengthened the view that extinction was an important part of the history of life. And, and also, because of her discoveries in Jurassic rocks from the south coast of England, she played a role in the growing perception that fossils are indeed the timekeepers of Earth history. I love that phrase. Fossils are the timekeepers right? of Earth history. Love that. So we've come more towards the end of Mary's story. And while she wasn't recognized as a scientist by her fellow paleontologists, and she didn't have access to the education or academic resources that they did, they did grow to appreciate her very much. They do recognize her contributions in some way. And luckily, they did put their money where their mouths were because she never married. And to keep her secure as she aged, the British Association for the Advancement of Science actually began paying her a very small yearly salary to show their appreciation for her work and to keep her secure as she got older. Because then they actually recognize the the con- yeah her contribution yeah. the fact that she did all that they are and she actually very sadly when she's quite young uh, in her forties gets very sick with breast cancer and in 1845 the geological society actually puts together a fund to pay for her treatment what little treatment we have for something like that at the time so they do take care of her in her later life which That's I, good. I can respect yeah absolutely you know she is given so much time and effort and knowledge Mm -hmm. and samples to the geological world, the paleontological world. It's a tough (laughs) word. Yeah. Um, Without without kind of receiving that through her life, then um, I think that's a really good thing to do. I think that's very indicative that of how influential her contributions were that they recognized her in this way, even at the time when being a woman in science was completely impossible. So sadly, she dies quite young at age 47, and she is commemorated a few years later with a beautiful stained glass window in the Lyme Regis Church, which is dedicated to her and her work, which I really want to see. Greg, you and I have to go on a road trip to the Jurassic Coast because I want to Consider it done. 
She's also now been recognized a little more formally as the namesake for several fossilized organisms, including fish, reptiles, mollusks, and eventually the whole plesiosaur genus is given the official Latin name Anningosaura. Oh, that's awesome. Which makes me really happy. That did make me think, like, she didn't get to name the pterosaur mm-hmm. or the ichthyosaur or... Exactly. She didn't get to name them, did no. she? No, so what, it's only in retrospect. What did she call them? While I wasn't able to find any official documentation of Mary and what she was calling them at the time, other amateur fossil collectors are finding teeth and bones and crazy things that are huge and obviously kind of scary and freaky. And most people, a lot of historians think that this is where the legend of dragons comes from. We're on dragons. We come, we've we come to back dragons. full circle to dragons. And so even after we know that these aren't dragons, we've figured out that they're dinosaurs. Often in these curio shops, they're sold as dragon's teeth or dragon's feathers or something like that. Well, the plesiosaur, the ichthyosaur is kind of like a sea dragon. Yes. It, right? I mean, what's the difference, really? Dragons did exist and fire. they were dinosaurs. You can't, you can't breathe fire in the water. I mean, that's true. <laughs> I guess there's one element missing. As we move into today, Mary Anning is recognized more and more often for her contributions recently in 2010, the Royal Society recognizes her as one of the 10 British women who most influenced the development of science. And you referenced this a little bit earlier, Greg, about the relationship of this idea of changing life on Earth and extinction with what we eventually come to know as evolution. evolution. Yeah. You say it differently. (laughs) (laughs) Paleontology may be an old science, but it remains a, a vibrant one because we're always discovering new evidence of ancient life and and developing new ways of looking at it and thinking about it. I I think by the mid-1800s, Charles Darwin had published The Origin of Species, which gave a, a new framework for thinking about the fossil record. And by later in the 19th century, it was routine for paleontologists to interpret their fossils in terms of evolution. Then I think the thing that started around the end of the 19th century, the very beginning of the 20th century, was the discovery of radioactivity. Now you might say, why would radioactivity impact paleontology? Well, it turns out that radioactivity gives us a way of actually dating fossils in the rocks. Yeah, so this is radiocarbon dating or Mm -hmm. whatever. How does it work? Basically, different isotopes or kinds of carbon. Carbon-14, isn't it? Yeah, they have different half-lives. So we know how long they last. And so based on how much is left, you can sort of backtrack and see when this originated is is the general idea. So that's just to give us a sense of like Mary Anning and this era of paleontology and this idea of extinction is just the beginning for this explosion of our understanding of life on Earth. Charles Darwin revisits this uh, briefly, very briefly in his origin of the species. I think he has two chapters on fossils and how the fossil record plays into evolution. But then we get evolution, we get radiocarbon dating and our ability to understand when and where these organisms come from and when they died and what they were doing really jumps forward. So she laid the foundations for one of the biggest ideas in in science. Precisely. So that, you know, Darwin and Wallace could look at her, you know, what she was pulling out from those white cliffs and her contemporaries in order to, to, to really blow everyone's brain with that concept. Exactly. And and that progress has only continued into today. Like the era of discovery that we are in now in paleontology almost mirrors what was happening during the days of Anning and Cuvier. So we now know uh, in a way that Mary never could have that there's this extraordinarily long history of life and that 
nearly 90% of that history is microbial, that plants and animals are evolutionary newcomers. You know, I like to see a dinosaur bone. On the other hand, when I look through my microscope and see single-celled organisms that lived a billion years ago, that's that's pretty exciting. I mean, that is exciting. I know that you <laughs> will absolutely love that. But you see I'm, my face light up yeah, when yeah. he mentions a microscope. <laughs> but I'm like, hello, I'm sorry. A big, like, you know, prehistoric animal Nothing will ever is compare. kind of, kind of going to take the... <laughs> take the biscuit on that one. But with our with our ability to understand and maybe even still extract if there's tissue left in any of these samples and have a genetic understanding of these organisms and looking at the microbial life, it is really pushing forward the depth and nuance of our understanding of life on ancient Earth. And this is about to blow your mind. I'm going to leave us with this because this is going to explode your gourd. Andy... <laughs> Explode my gourd. Get ready. Andy and his lab group are also starting to do geological work in space. They're the first to have described a cross section of a couple of meters of another planet. In this case, a sample from Mars. What, looking at the microbes and all the... The, the rocks and the geology and the history and yes. formation. Yes, of the geology of Mars. There's no, I mean, we haven't found any microbes on Mars yet. Let's just clarify. But this is, you know, rock, mineral, layers, what's been happening geologically on Mars. So I think it's really exciting to look back on the crazy advancements that we've made in the past. And like you said, the foundations of this field, when we're looking at the exciting future, the equally exciting future of this field, not only on our planet, but on others as well. It will be seashells, seashells by the Martian shore. <laughs> by the Mars rover. <laughs> and by the way, I googled that um, and it turns out that it's part of a whole tongue twister. There are four lines to it. You only gave me the first. So <gasps> just to end off, there's oh, your no, challenge, flashing my laptop in your direction. your revenge for my earlier challenge. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. Oh no, this is going to be a disaster. Yeah. She sells seashells by the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. Jeez Louise. Good I could never job. could never do that any faster Good than that. Job. <laughs> so there you have it. Nursery rhymes, dragons, a woman written out of history. And paleontology on Mars. Fantastic. What a good story. Thanks so much for listening, Greg. I really appreciate it. If you guys listening to this podcast want to find out more about Andy and his amazing group's work at Harvard, then check out the links to those resources and the rest of the sources about Mary Anning and the field at the time that I used for this episode. They will be in the podcast description. Uh, and please do rate and review the show. It really helps it grow, as does telling your mates, as we always say. But please, please do. do. Yeah, please do. And um, more episodes hopefully coming soon. So do subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery or an invention that you'd like to know the story behind, get in touch. Brilliant at seeker.com. Send us an email. That's brilliant at seeker.com. And now it's time to roll the credits. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. Today's episode on Mary Anning was research, written and produced by me, Marin Hunsberger. If you want to get in touch with me on social media, I'm at Marin B on Instagram, at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter and Marin Hunsberger on YouTube. You can also find me hosting videos on Seeker's YouTube. 
YouTube channel. That list gets longer every time we do it. <laughs> I keep thinking of new things. Uh, it was listened to and very much enjoyed by me. I'm Greg Foote. I'm on the internet somewhere. Twitter and Instagram at Greg Foote. I'm like, yours yeah, is simpler. Here's MySpace page. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hattikuda. And finally, another huge thanks to our guest expert, Andy Knoll. I really love talking to him. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next time for one of Greg's episodes. Indeedy. Speak to you then. Bye. Bye.